So I have a question for you this morning. Whether you're a duck fan or a beaver fan, you're here. Some celebrating, some mourning. But you're here. My question is, why are we here? Even more specifically, why are we still here? I mean, seriously, do you ever ask yourself that? Why are we still here? Why? Why are we still here? Why does God have us not just here this morning in this room worshiping him, but why does God have us in, in this particular time, in this particular place in the world with these particular people? Why? In this moment in history, why were you born? Why do you live where you live? Why do you do what you do? Certainly Daniel and his three friends and later other captives who were taken to Babylon as prisoners of war would have asked such a question. The Bible says in the book of Acts that when David had served, this would be King David in this case, had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He finally got to take a long nap. It's, it's the Bible's way of speaking of death. After all, the soul does not die. When Daniel serve God's purpose in his generation, he did the same. It just so happens that his purpose in his generation was not necessarily among his own people. It was a different place, a different time, a different king, and a different kingdom. And to help us understand it, I think that it's good to see how you can take this piece of the Bible over here and this piece of the Bible over here and you can tie them together because they really went together. They happened in the same moment in time. So I want to take one of your favorite verses of the Bible and I want to tie it very specifically today to the book of Daniel. That favorite verse would be in Jeremiah 29. I'm going to get to it in a moment. But I want to read you again the opening of the book of Daniel. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This would have been 605 B.C., 600 years before Jesus was born, 605 B.C. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, and he carried off from the temple of his, he carried them off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure, put them in the treasure house of his God, which would have been deeply sacrilegious to the Jewish people, right? So I want you to think about how you're feeling if you're those Jewish folks taken in 605 BC. And, 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 and I want to just tell you up front, this didn't just happen once. It happened again and again and again that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem, marched on Judah, battled with the kingdoms of the world, won and took prisoners back to Babylon. It didn't just happen to people of Judah. It happened to people of other nations. And it didn't just happen once to the people of Judah. It happened over and over and over. In fact, it sort of helps if you know that it happened again in 597 B.C. And it happened again in 587, 586 B.C. And in that moment, 587, 586, Nebuchadnezzar completely ransacked, destroyed Jerusalem and completely tore down the temple of God. That's 
18 years after Daniel first showed up to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And he, he didn't show up out of willingness. He showed up out of sovereignty. So if you're one of those Jewish captives, how are you feeling about God? Just being honest. You're pretty angry. How are you feeling about your future? Not good. How are you feeling about your family? They may or may not have survived. There's a lot of reason for resentment. There's a lot of reason for disillusionment. There's a lot of reason for despair. Because there's been so much disruption to your world caused by the king of Babylon. And yet, Daniel writes, and it's hidden there. Verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord did this. Which is going to take me over to the book of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah lived at the same time that Daniel did. And he served the people of God at the same time that Daniel did. Except Daniel was with the exiles in Babylon and Jeremiah was more or less back home. Two prophets, same kingdoms, different places, serving the same God, and essentially communicating the same message. In fact, I want to show you how similar the message is. And remember, Daniel taken in 605 BC, history, I know history, right? Like my favorite <clears throat> class in high school, right? Oh, let's talk about history from 2,700, 2,600 years ago. How interested are you in that? But I'm telling you, this history really matters. Daniel taken in 605 B.C., more exiles taken again in 597 B.C., more exiles, and Jerusalem completely destroyed 587, 586 B.C., this is Jeremiah 29. I'm not just going to read your, fa your favorite verse, some people's favorite verse, verse right? Jer Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. You know that verse, right? Everybody loves that verse. I, mean, I don't know of anybody that doesn't love that verse. I do want to show you, though, today, that verse wasn't written just to you personally. I mean, the Bible is written to you in many senses, but it was written to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. The specific place happens to be the people with Daniel in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Same people similar time frame. He, in fact, he, he specifically dates it for us without telling us a number. Verse 2 says, this was after King Jehoiachin, all right, so Jehoiachin was made king after Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was taken with Daniel back in that day. Jehoiachin left. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. The skilled workers, the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. So to date that specifically, this is 597 B.C. This is eight years after Daniel and his buddies were first taken. He entrusted the letter, Jeremiah did, to Elsa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamiah, son of Hilkiah, and to Zedekiah, king of, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You, you just have to realize this, this adds like depth. Like if you had been the people in this time, you would know who these people are. They would be trusted people. You would have known that this really was from the prophet Jeremiah. These would be your people. They would, you would know these names. Does this make sense? There was no internet in the day, no social media in the day. And Babylon is 
a long, 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 add a bunch more longs way from home. This is the letter. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, he said, I thought we were studying the book of Daniel. We are. These things go together. You just got to see how they, how they fit. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Did you hear the language? This is a message from God, and God is saying, this is the message I'm giving to the people I carried into exile. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this. I did, God says, his prophet says. Daniel said it. Daniel 1-2. Jeremiah said it. Jeremiah 29-4. This is what God is doing. Now, go back. You, your family, your hometown, ransacked. You've lost everything you have. You've taken as a prisoner of war to serve as a captive in a foreign land. How are you feeling about that? And let's go a little further. What do you want to hear? What's the message you want to hear? Seriously, what would give you hope? Take us home. Delivery, right? Like God's going to smite Nebuchadnezzar? That there's going to be a sense of God coming in to win the day? That you get to go back home? This is your hope, right? In fact, if you study the book of Jeremiah and you read Jeremiah 28, there was a false prophet named Hananiah. who told them exactly what they wanted to hear. This won't last long. God's coming for you. You're going to be home soon. It's all going to be okay. And that's specifically why Jeremiah writes this letter. So again, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Here's the message of the letter. Build houses. He didn't say build tents. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. See, the thing, the thing it already been said. Jeremiah had already prophesied. It was earlier in Jeremiah. There's going to be 70 years, which he repeats at the end of this letter. There's going to be 70 years before the people of God come home. Seven decades. And here comes a prophet that says, hey, I know what you want to hear is, is you know, God wants to make you healthy and happy, and God wants everything to be you know, God just wants to give you everything you want. And so he's, he's coming in on the white horse to the rescue. He'll be here any time to take you back home. And Jeremiah shows up to say, no, 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 no. That's not what God has said. If you're one of the exiles, it gets tougher. It's a pretty tough message to hear. Look, bloom where you're planted. You're planted and Babylon, bloom there. That's a tough message to hear. It gets tougher. Verse 7, also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. When you don't know the history, that, that doesn't sound all that bad. When you know the history, that sounds impossible to do, humanly speaking. Wait, you, you want me to pray for you, God, to bless the king who ransacked our home, who killed my family, who took out my friends, who destroyed, or eventually will destroy, this 597. He doesn't yet destroy the temple. That comes 10 years later. You want me to pray for him, for blessing on him? Because if he prospers, we too shall prosper? 
How easy do you think hate was in that day and that time? Hate's the easiest thing in the world to do because it's a very natural human reaction. It's, it's the path of least resistance. Someone hurts you, someone hurts those you care about. Hate is human. Verse 8, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not listen or do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not sent them, declares the Lord. It's a, he basically says, look, you're telling them what to tell you. I wonder how much that verse would apply to social media today. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years, seven decades, now just to be clear, this is more than their lifetime. If they were taken as adults in captivity, he's saying you're not going back home. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, Jeremiah being back in Jerusalem at this point, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I want you to catch the emphasis, the plans I have for you. Because you got plans. And they had plans. They were planning on the Lord giving them everything they wanted. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Prosper you. It's the same thing he said to pray, except the prospering was going to happen in Babylon, not back home. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, listen to the emphasis. When you seek me with all your heart. Not when you seek what you want to hear from the false prophets with all your heart. Not when you, not when you, not when you seek the false hope, but the real hope. Does this make sense? I'm just trying to take a verse that we all love, put it in context in history, and show us how to live it. And I want to answer that question we began with. Why are we here? Why are we still here? Verse 14, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Again, the emphasis on God did this. And if you read the rest of the story, you know, I mean, like the Paul Harvey rest of the story, what you, what you well should recognize is that God had told them over and over and over this was going to happen if they didn't repent and follow him. And they thumbed their nose at God and said, we don't really care about what you're saying. We're going to do what you want. That this exile was really the judgment of God on his own people. It was the discipline of God on his own people because they refused to seek God with all their heart, because they, they chose to put idols above God, not just like, you know, things, little statue idols, but they put themselves ahead of God. So what does any of this have to do with us? And I, I want to say just a couple of things real quick historically about this. It was written to a specific time, to a specific people, in a specific place. It's not a promise that I know the plans I have for you. It, that, that verse, it's, it's not a promise that God's got, you know, this nice little package, neat, tidy, everything's perfect dream for your life, and that God's going to do everything you want. You just, woo, 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 woo. God comes up and genie in the bottle gives you everything you want. That's not this verse. Is it good to have dreams for your life? Yeah, but we should seek the Lord's dreams for our life. In fact, he was basically in this verse telling these particular people that their personal dreams were not going to be fulfilled because their dreams were 
God show up on the white horse to defeat Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, the people of God have always sought such a dream that God would show up on the white horse and defeat, defeat the political <clears throat> powers that be, that they would be delivered and that God would give them everything they want and their life would be better because God would rule over them and not all of, for lack of a better way of saying it, the stupid humans they can't stand. Now, we're not political around here, meaning we're not gathered around politics. So we're not here to speak of current leadership in the language I just did. But I want you to know that any given moment, any given time, I think about it, the time of Jesus, like Christmas, incarnation, we celebrate when Jesus was born. At that time, in that place, in that moment of time, people expected a Messiah. What kind of Messiah did they expect? A political one who would overthrow who? Rome. And Jesus became that deliverer. But to establish the kingdom of God, not a kingdom of man. So what does, again, any of this have to do with us as a church? Why are we still here? Because, you know... When I became a believer in Jesus, in some like, like God plan sense, I, God could have just gone like, bing, and I could have just like, up in the air in the clouds, and then, you know, I became a believer of Jesus, and then poof, I'm in heaven. Or it could have been a little more uh, drastic, and it, instead of just bing like that, it could have been bing into the ground, and then God could do that, but he didn't. I'm still here. Why am I still here? And the answer which is super complex, I realize. But the answer boils down to, I'm still here to represent God. And so are we. And so what is this teaching you and I about the church? Well, the one thing I'm trying to say today, the one thing this is about, just to simplify it, is that I'm challenging you and I'm challenging me today as the church to help the church be a refuge for our neighbors, not a refuge from our neighbors. Be a refuge for our neighbors, not a refuge from our nature, our neighbors. We're here to engage the people around us and the culture around us and the city around us and the nation around us and the world around us. We're here to engage them, not escape them. So one of the things you have to know about the false prophets in their day is the false prophets basically told them, God is on the verge of giving you everything you want. You're going to be taken back home. So all you've got to do is just huddle together, stay away from all the Babylonians, and God will give you what you want. And God said no to that. And I think he did it on purpose. See, Jeremiah has three messages for the exiles, and all of these messages end up reflecting the mindset of Daniel himself. In fact, as I told you, this letter takes place 597 BC. Daniel was taken 605 BC. I think my math is reasonable enough that there's about eight years or so in there. I sort of wonder if Jeremiah didn't know of Daniel, Daniel didn't know of Jeremiah, and that there wasn't some mutual understanding because there's certainly the same language. God carried you into exile. Now, the key here is whether they were communicating with each other or not, they were serving the same God who was communicating directly to both of them. So three messages that Jeremiah has for people living in one kingdom while their home, and for that matter, their heart, is in another. And you must some days feel like your home is heaven and you're not sure why you're still planted in this one. And here are the answers. Three messages. Number one, message number one, I think you heard this in the text as we went through it. It's going to be a while. Prepare to endure. It's going to be a while, right? The language, the words here, build houses and settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Gardens, plural. I don't know that that just meant the garden over here and the garden over there. That meant this year's garden, next year's garden, the gardens after that. Marry and have sons and daughters. That, you know, it takes a while to have sons and daughters, but what takes 
even longer is you find wives for your sons and you give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. That takes a while, doesn't it? Increase in number there and do not increase. There are two things he told them to do that I think help them endure and I think help us endure as well because certainly there's a sense of perseverance that is needed in the season we live in. Two things that help us endure, roots and relationships. Roots and relationships. He told them literally to put down roots. It's in plant gardens, isn't it? But he goes further than that. I mean, telling them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city, telling them to have family and see family expand there. He is saying, go on with life. Put down roots. And again, by telling them to find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, they too may have sons and daughters, and to increase in number there for them to grow. He's talking about their relationships, partly with each other, and then eventually talking about their relationships with the Babylonians themselves in seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city to which God had carried them into exile. Put down roots, not not pull them up. They would want to put down tent stakes and then pull them up very quickly. He says, no, no, no. Do more than that. Now, does this mean that we just give up on God and say, forget God? God abandoned us. God sent us into exile. Forget God. We're Babylonian now. That temptation would have been there, but... Did Daniel do that? Did Daniel abandon God and give up his faith? Not at all. Daniel 1.8, he resolved not to defile himself, right, with the food and the wine from the king's table. But it does set up this sense of things that, right, you and I tend to find it easy to let hatred, or if not hatred, then hard-heartedness enter into the equation, we get into a season like we're in where there's so much disruption to life. And if it's not hatred, then it's hard heartedness that makes us say, you know what, I'm just going to put my head down and I'm just going to coast. And God is not talking about in coasting. He's talking about engaging roots, relationships. Message number two, Jeremiah of God to the exiles was be a blessing, not a burden. Be a blessing, not a burden. Prepare to serve. Now, specifically, they're going to serve God and God's purpose, but to serve God and serve God's purpose requires us to serve people. And in this case, I want to bring in that verse where Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because this is that on display for us. Be a blessing, not a burden. How do we do that? How do you serve people that hurt you personally? You look for the hand of God at work. You listen for the hand of God at work. And you begin to see obstacles as opportunities because you see God working in those obstacles and turning them into opportunities. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, verse 4, Jeremiah 29, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. When I begin to look at my own circumstances, not through my own lens of what I want and what I desire, but through the lens of what God wants and what God wants to do, I begin to see God's opportunities in front of me. Opportunities to serve. Opportunities to bless. Opportunities to love. Love our neighbor. Love our enemy. Verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile and pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I mean, just think about it logically. If God knows you're going to be there for seven decades, and what you're praying is, God, smite these people in this place, like God, wipe out these people in this place, but we're going to be stuck here for 70 years, you're praying for God to wipe you out as well.
And the reality is, it had always been the heart of God that the people of God would bless the other people's around them. It had always been God's heart that that would be the case. It had always been God's plan that the nation of Israel would be a blessing to the other nations. I mean, seriously, you just don't have to go far to find this. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation, God says to Abraham. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God said to to Abraham and to every generation of Israelites, really, since, that you were supposed to bless the nations around you, not to give them everything they want, but to bless them in the sense of bringing God to them. They refused and refused and refused. Isaiah 49, 6, God says to his people and and also to his servant, who I think is, is Jesus to understand it in context, but Isaiah 49, 6, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The goal always has been that the people of the earth would be blessed through the people of God, that salvation would come to them. This is why Christians today travel around the world to not only share the gospel, but to serve people in God's name, to bring healing and hope in God's name, to bring salvation in God's name. I think as Christians in America, we forget that the missionary strategies we send our missionaries to do in China and India and Africa and various other places are strategies that work very well right here at home which if you think about it, is the strategy Harvest takes. I mean, quite seriously. We follow a sort of church planting kind of strategy that says we are here to bless this community. Why are we doing a thank you campaign? We're doing a thank you campaign to genuinely say to frontline people and first responders that they matter, they make a difference because they're so discouraged. But we're also doing it because many of them, and I'm just going to be straight for a second, think that Christians could care less about how difficult their life is. And it's all based on politics they hear in the media. And we want them to see our God differently. I'm not asking us to sin in Jesus' name for the sake of reaching people for the gospel. I am asking us to love in Jesus' name. Why do we outserve our size and talk about the values where we love the world the way Jesus loves the world? Why, why do we put so much emphasis on investing in a school down the street or partnering to reach the University of Oregon because it's in our backyard? And by the way, is a mission field right around us. In fact, if you categorize the University of Oregon as a people group, it would be an unreached people group if you look at it missiologically. God has us here. To be a blessing, not a burden. We're here to serve. Which just takes me to Matthew 5. I tell you, love your enemies. Matt, realize he said love your neighbor too. I'm not calling everybody around you your enemies. But even when you have enemies, he says to love them. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm going to take us in a minute, but I want to keep going on the outline to Romans 12, where it says there to bless and not curse as well. But I think I want to skip that for now. I'm just processing my own notes a little bit on the fly. Number three, the message of Jeremiah to the people in exile was focus on real hope, not false hope. Focus on real hope, not false hope. And the message here is to prepare to lean on the Lord, right? To seek the Lord with all your heart, to seek the Lord and not what you want, not your false hopes, but to seek God, or in our case, Jesus himself. How do we endure? We endure by leaning on the Lord. How do we love as Jesus loves? We love as Jesus loves by leaning on the Lord. How how do we find the strength to love when it would be easier to hate? We lean on the Lord and we love like Jesus loves. We, we, we ask Jesus to be him in us, bringing about real hope and bringing about real love. And of course, real faith. That makes sense. 
This is how we live out our values as kingdom people. Right? He was basically saying to them, you know, don't listen to the false prophets and the diviners among you, Jeremiah 29, 8. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not sent them. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, and you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you'll seek and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's very clear here that we need hope, but the hope's got to come through him. Do you know how easy it is as Christians for our hope to be in our wishes fulfilled? And do you know how easy it is for our own wishes to become idols? Things we hold up in place of God. So back in Daniel, let's get practical. What is this teaching us about how Christians interact with the culture around him? How do Christians interact with unchristian culture? What did Daniel learn and how do we learn from Daniel to treat others the way Jeremiah is saying? And it, for that matter, I'm just sort of asking, did Jeremiah get this from Daniel? Did Daniel get this from Jeremiah? Did they both just get it from God? Because it seems to be a God strategy here. Daniel 1.8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into the character of Daniel, talk about how to develop character. We're going to talk about courage and how to develop courage, and we're going to have to go deep into the text of Daniel 1 to really get all of that. But I, I just want you to see, Daniel didn't just give up and say, okay, we're Babylonian now. Like, he kept God. He sought God with all his heart. Daniel 1.18, at the time, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them, this would be Daniel and his three friends, Rakshak and Benny, into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, and so they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That was 70 years, by the way. It's the same time frame that Jeremiah is talking about. It's basically saying that they remained there as an influence. Why are we still here? To be an influence. So I want to get super practical with us just as we bring this home today. And I want to give you four common paths that Christians take towards non-Christians. Four common paths. Just think about it. You have watched this repeat itself in your own life and in other Christians' lives over and over over the years. You have watched these patterns happen, these paths. Path number one is assimilation, where we become like the non-Christians. This is what I was talking about when I, when I said, are they supposed to just give up hope, abandon God, and become Babylonian? Right? I, I, if, if you hear the word assimilation and you have any Star Trek background at all, you know, you hear sort of, you will be assimilated, something of that nature. And, but assimilation is this blending in. It's, it's just becoming more and more and more like the world around us and less and less and less like the God who loves us. Where we blend in and become like the non-Christians. And quite honestly, I see this happen to a lot of Christians. That's very common to just, for people to just sort of drift away from the people of God. I heard this the other day. It was a great statement. I want to see if I can get it right. Somebody said, and gosh, I don't remember who, so I, I can't give credit. But somebody said, and I heard this, I thought it was great. People drift from the people of God before they drift from God. And how often do you see us drift from the church? Assimilation, we become like the non-Christians, right? The problem with blending in is we're doing the exact opposite of what God said do to seek him with all our hearts. So some Christians take the path of assimilation, we become like the non-Christians. Some take the path of separation, we isolate from the non-Christians, right? So the extreme example of this would be something like the Amish, 
right? You sort of just set up a subculture of your own inside of Babylon, if you will, and you set up a subculture and nobody gets in and nobody gets out. And at a very extreme level, this becomes cult-like. And it, trust me, this, it, it, it happens. Not, I'm not just talking about Amish people. It happens in cults all the time. You don't get out without complete rejection, and you don't get in without proving a whole, whole lot because you don't belong. Because, because we're here to separate from you. Now, it's not just the fringes that do this. Because Christians find it very, very easy to, you know, get five years, ten years into their Christianity of following Jesus and look around and go, you know what, I don't know any non-Christian people. Because my whole life is surrounded by Christian people. Or we just isolate, isolate, isolate. This is why I keep us so focused on partnerships that serve our community so that we constantly have opportunity to build relationships with people who might not believe the same thing we believe. Basically, what we're doing if we take the path of separation is we're pretending that we're not the ungodly people, that we're the God-honored ones, right? And nobody else deserves what we have. The reality is Christianity is not at all about who deserves what. None of us deserve any of it. It's all grace. So assimilation, we become like the non-Christians. Separation, we isolate from the non-Christians. Altercation, I know I'm stretching here a bit. It just, it, it goes with the Asian thing, right? Altercation when we fight with the non-Christians, right? I, 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 maybe a little better word here might have been antagonism, where we're fighting constantly with the ungodly to try to make them act more godly. And I want you to think about the strategy here. The strategy here is that I'm going to fight with you to make you live by my values, but I'm going to trash my own values in order to make you live like my values. I'm going to become like your values where I fight with you the way you fight. Because this is war. Everything becomes us versus them. It's not just us and them. It's us versus them. There's good people and there's bad guys. And we're the good people and they're the bad guys. This is, I think, in, among a lot of American Christians, one of the most popular paths to take. We fight back. You know your enemy. You defeat your enemy. You embarrass your enemy on social media and you pummel your enemy. But there's a huge problem with this good guy, bad guy thinking. We're all the bad guys. There was one good guy, and the bad guys crucified him. We're all beggars for grace. And the failed perspective here is when we begin to see the unchristian world around us, the lost world around us, as the enemy rather than as captives of the enemy. Rather than seeing them as neighbors to be loved, we see them as enemies to be fought with. So pause here. I know, time, 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 time. I know what time it is. I have a big clock back there with big numbers, so even with my glasses, I can see it. Without them, not so much. It's just red. But with my glasses, I know. So pause here. Altercation, assimilation, separation. Which of these paths was the path of Daniel? None of them. Even more important, which of these paths was the path of Jesus? Because Jesus would have every right to separate and say, I don't want nothing to do with you. And he didn't do that. Jesus would have every right to show up on the white horse and fight. And when Jesus was born, that's not the path he chose. He chose to serve. 
But then again, here we are worshiping Jesus 2,000 years later, and the kingdom of Rome exists, certainly, but the kingdom of the Romans as it existed back then, no longer. Those kingdoms have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone, and the kingdom of Jesus is still here because Jesus chose the path he did. But it's a path of sacrifice. It's a path of love. It's a path of grace. Does this mean we never stand up for our values? Not at all. Daniel did it. Daniel 1.8 did not defile himself, which is largely about worshiping the Babylonian gods. He maintained his identity as a God follower, but he chose another path. I'm going to call this path the path of incarnation, number four where you bring grace to the non-Christians. This is about influence. The realization, the real truth, is that influence is inevitable. We will influence all of the culture around us. No matter how much we separate or how we interact, we will influence the culture around us. The question is, what kind of influence will we have? Will it be an influence of grace? Daniel did draw lines in the sand, but he didn't insist that the Babylonians live his values. He just lived his values among them. And he brought God, essentially, to godless people. He brought grace to graceless people, and he gave flesh to the ways of God. And so he began to live in grace and act from grace and offer grace. And if you think about it, what do we call Christmas? We call it the incarnation because it's God in the flesh, right? But we all get to flesh out God to some people around us if we'll just choose to. So I'm going to read Romans 12, and I want to pray our two prayers to bring us home. Is that good? Here's how God said it in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, which starts out, by the way, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by living ourselves for God first. And the middle of Romans 12 telling us, in fact, you can all like Romans 12 as love God or love Jesus, the middle of Romans 12, love people, the end of Romans 12, love the world the way Jesus loves the world. That is the outline of Romans 12. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited, and do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the sight or the eyes of everyone, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of grace. Aren't you glad he did it? It's how, it's how you were reached, right? And it's how everyone around us will be reached as well. So I want to pray for us. And we always end with two prayers. And as we pray these prayers, I just genuinely want us to say, what would Jesus do in my life? Our first prayer is a prayer of salvation. Do you need salvation today? Because Jesus came and died on a cross for your sins. It was personal. And they put him in an empty grave. And on the third day, he came back to life miraculously, but proving that he is not just some dude who was good or some guy with good teachings, but he's the son of God in the flesh who came to forgive sins and who came to show us the way of love. Do you need him? Because I sure do. I can't do any of this. This is my my outline. I can't do any of this without Jesus. I just can't. I'm humanly incapable. If you need Jesus today, would you receive him and pray just like this? Dear Jesus, I fall so short and I can be so selfish 
So please forgive me. Please. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying and living. And take over my life. Be my God, Jesus. I put my hope in you. And I ask you to take all that is wrong about me away and put you in me. Help me to live out your grace, Jesus. Live from it every day. In Jesus' name I pray. I hope if you need Jesus today, online, in person, that you prayed that with me. We celebrate every time somebody does that. There's another citizen in the kingdom of heaven. It's a beautiful, beautiful, like beyond description, incredible celebration when that happens. We would love to celebrate with you, but you got to tell somebody. So tell somebody you're watching with, tell somebody you came with, tell somebody in the communication card. You can tell me, you can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at harvestchurcheugene.com, but tell somebody. But I want to pray for all of us. In fact, I don't just want to pray for us. I want to pray with us. I want you to pray. And I hope you would pray this prayer of discipleship, of application with me. Pray like this. Dear Jesus, help me to absorb all this really means for my world, my family. Give me your outlook and your perspective. Give me the strength to endure the strength to serve and bless and the strength to lean on you when I've got nothing. Help me to see everyone as you see them. People who need you. People who need grace. And help me to live in grace Treat others with grace and share your grace. Jesus, collectively, we ask that you make our church a refuge for our neighbors, not a refuge from our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray.